Welcome to Now's the Time, learning how to get unstuck and move forward with the help of George Washington. This is David Cross from Indispensable Leadership, and I am delighted to have you here in this second, very important module of this program that's going to help you get unstuck, whether we're dealing with your home life or your professional life. And I want to congratulate you for getting through that first module and for doing the exercises. Now, if you haven't done the exercises, please stop this, go back and do them. Because if you just listen to these programs, you're going to hear some things, but it is only when we act upon the things that we hear that we're going to be able to make any actual progress. So, you've done the exercises? Fantastic. Because now we are going to do what's probably the most important of all the modules that we have, because this is the module that's going to discuss how we can change our mindset, which is really what it takes to change your life. So I can hear you already. Wait a minute, David. Mindset? Really? There's enough mindset things out there. I This was supposed to be about George Washington. This is a guy who acts. This is a guy who is a general. This is a guy who does things. Are we really going to go into all of this mindset stuff? And all I can say is, yeah, we are. Because George Washington is one of the great examples of how you can change by changing your mindset and by changing yourself. You know, the biggest battle George Washington ever had to fight was with himself, was with his passions, was with his ego, was with the way he thought about things, was with some of his limiting beliefs. And we're going to go through what he actually did as we go along this series. We're going to tie this all in when we discuss Washington crossing the Delaware. Buddha once said this, One person may conquer in battle a thousand times a thousand others, but the true heroes are those who conquer themselves. And that's the real story of George Washington. Now, come on, you know I'm from Philly, so you know I love Rocky. What are the, what are the movies about? Yeah, he wins the fight, but the real fight is with himself, right? In that first great movie, and it is a great movie, people, the original Rocky from 1976, his big problem is his limiting beliefs. He thinks he's too old. He thinks he's a bum. He thinks he's no good. He has to change the way he thinks about himself. That's the battle. And when he becomes a coach, he shows Creed a mirror, and he says, this is the guy you need to control. This is the guy you need to defeat. That's the story. That's the story for all of us. Because we all have these brains, but we're not taught how to use them. And we make this mistake thinking everything that occurs in our brain is us when it's not. You know, a thought in your brain is just a thought in your brain. Anyway, we're going to go into all of that. But we're going to start by talking about what kind of state of mind you have to have in order to actually accomplish something. You know, Stephen Covey wrote a great book called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Great book, great classic. And it said that behind everything that is done, everything that is created, invented, there's two things. There's two things that happen. First, you have to think about it, and then you have to create it. So what he's saying is, before you land on the moon, let's say, first you got to think of the idea of landing on the moon, then you got to actually figure out how to land on the moon, then you have to 
actually carry it out. Now I'm going to amend what he said or I'm going to add to what he said. Well, I don't think it's two things that have to occur. I think you have to have three things occur in order to create something. Now, as Stephen Covey says, the first thing you need is you have to think of it. You know, Lin-Manuel is taking a vacation. He picks up a book about Alexander Hamilton in the drugstore. And he's reading this book about Alexander Hamilton. And he thinks, boy, you know, this guys he's a lot like a rap star. He, he reminds me of rap stars who I've read about or who I know. This would make a great rap musical. So that's the first step. Lin-Manuel sees the book. Lin-Manuel has the idea. But then there's a second step that is absolutely necessary that Steve Covey skipped over. And that second step is belief. You have to believe in it. Not just believe it might happen. Not just believe it could happen. You have to have 100% faith that you can do it and that it will happen. Let me say that again. You have to have 100% faith that this thing you're creating, you will be able to create and it will be accepted. And then as Steve Covey says, the third thing is you have to do the work to produce the thing. You know, this is whether it's, we're talking about a marriage, a book, an invention, a business, whatever it is, it's going to require these three things. And nothing gets produced without these three things. Bob Dylan once said, you either got faith or you got unbelief and there ain't no neutral ground. You either got faith or you got unbelief and there ain't no neutral ground. Now, what does he mean by that? Most people go through their lives as if there's three choices. You have faith, you have non-belief, you're an agnostic, right? problem with being an agnostic is that's no different from non-belief. All right? To say I'll believe something if it's proven to me is nothing, right? There's nothing in the world that you won't believe if it's proven to you. If it's proven to you that rabbits are actually far more intelligent than human beings, you'll believe it, right? If, If it's proven to you that time is not going forward, it's going backward, You'll believe it. There's nothing in the world that you won't believe if it's proven to you. Therefore, being an agnostic, that, that, doesn't, that doesn't have any meaning. And your brain doesn't know what that means. That's the important thing. If you're jumping off stairs, your brain knows there's this thing called gravity. And your brain acts accordingly. If... You're riding your bike and you're doing a trail you've done 50 times before. Your brain knows you can do that trail. But doubt, being an agnostic, saying it's got to be proven to you, that, that's all the same thing. There's faith or there's non-belief. You're in one of these two states all the time. You're either in a state of faith or you're in the state of non-belief. Faith is when you're going forward. Faith is when you're creating things. Faith is when you feel strong. Non-belief is when you're in flight. 
Non-belief is when you're going through the motions. Non-belief is when you just don't feel right today. You're always in one of those states, and it's only when you're in the state of faith that you produce anything worthwhile. There's a great writer out there named William Least Heatmoon, and I saw him on C-SPAN, and he was talking about his most famous book, Blue Highways. He, he drives road trips through the highways most people ignore. And he talked about the whole process of being an author and being a writer. And he said, writing, it's easy. It's getting the thing produced, sold, purchased. But he said, you know, the thing I discovered was that I had this great advantage because I was going to keep working on this and getting this thing done, I was going to make sure this thing got published. And I think he said that he had over a hundred different people, a hundred different publishers rejected this book, but he wasn't going to give up. And what he said was that most people give up after five rejections. And so that he said, you know, my competition was not the difficult part because they were all giving up after five, five rejection letters. And he went beyond the 100 rejection letters. Does that mean you just ignore it and say the rejections are crazy? No, when they had feedback, he would look at it. He kept working on the book. But he had 100% faith that the book was going to be published. And he operated on that faith. Now, here is an interesting fact that I have discovered. People go into a project expressing faith when they don't have faith. They're agnostic, which means, what does that mean to the brain? It means non-belief. Now, how do I know that? Well, I know that because they're like these people who give up after five rejections. Okay, everything you do in life is harder than you thought it would be. Let's start with that beginning assumption, piece of knowledge, fact. Everything you do is going to be harder than you thought it would be, and it's not going to go along exactly the plan that you made out. And we're always hearing that restaurants, most restaurants fail in the first year, most businesses fail in the first year. That's because they're being done by people who are agnostic. And I know they're agnostic because as soon as things don't go along the way they planned, they give up. You know, I knew a guy who was a public defender. And he wanted to be a private attorney. And he announced one day to the whole office that he was going to go out there. He was going to go out on his own. And we all had this huge party for him. And we celebrated and we wished him luck. And out he went. And he was back in six months. Okay, single guy. No big desperate reason he had to go back. No sick relative that, oh my gosh, I need to go back and get my health care. He just had no belief in himself. And as soon as things started to go the wrong way, he came running back with his tail between his legs. This is how the brain works. If the brain doesn't believe... If you're operating in a state of unbelief, you know, whatever the brain is thinking, it's going to find evidence to support it. All right? And we're going to get more into the neuroscience of this in just a minute. But that is a fact. Whatever your brain thinks, if your brain thinks there's no good men out there, 
then you're not going to find a good man out there. If your brain thinks the people in my neighborhood are trashy, you're going to meet a lot of trashy people in the neighborhood. Your brain's going to look for them. Your brain likes to be right. If your belief is that I'm a big fat pig, your brain is going to find reasons to believe that because your brain loves to be right. So when my friend left the office in order to become a private attorney, inside he was thinking, this isn't going to work. I can't do this. This is too much for me. I can't handle this. Now, he was agnostic. He was hoping things were going to go differently, that it was going to be easy and that he was going to be proven wrong. You cannot go out there uh, with, a, with a rebuttable assumption against yourself because you will be one of those statistics. You will be one of those restaurants that fails in one year. You will be one of those attorneys who goes running back to the DA's or the PD's office. I, I've known dozens of them. You have to go out with a belief that what you're going to do is going to work. And then your brain takes every piece of evidence leading in that direction and uses it. When I quit being a lawyer and decided to start a business giving historical walking tours, I very much remember the very first day in which I hired some kids to hand out pamphlets. I had no idea what I was doing, so I was going to jump in there. And my, my idea was, okay, you hand out pamphlets. I'm going to have like maybe 15 people each tour. I, I just believed this. Look at all these people at the visitor center. We hand out pamphlets, and I, I'm going to have this giant group of people. Maybe it'll just be five people. I don't know. We'll see. So I got these kids. I gave them pamphlets. Well, 10 o'clock came for the first tour, no people. 12 o'clock came, no people. 2 o'clock came, no people. It was one of the most depressing days of my life. And I remember being in the train, going home, thinking, I don't know if this is going to work. I think I was pretty much ready to give up. The only reason I didn't give up was at that point, I was 50. I had accumulated enough pain doing work that I hated that... I wasn't going to give up on this dream. So I kept on with it. And what I'm trying to do for those of you younger, for those of you who are in your 20s or 30s or 40s, is to save you some time. You shouldn't have to get to the point where your life, your day-to-day -day life is so miserable that it's merely you're willing to try anything to get away from it. What I learned later was that there are ways you can train your mind and train yourself so that you don't become debilitated as soon as something doesn't go right. I learned these things, as I've told you before. I learned it from the people I hang out with. George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin. I learned their lessons. I watched what they did and I learned how they did it. But I'm also learning, I will tell you, from reading the writings of uh, neuroscientists who are able to write in such a way that somebody with zero scientific capabilities can understand it. And there's quite a few of them out there, actually. They know how to write in human, right? And I've read these things, and they've really helped me to understand not only myself and not only others, but they've helped me to understand George Washington and what some of these founders 
just kind of figured out by instinct. I mean, the question becomes, how do you put yourself in state of mind? How can you make yourself believe? That's the question. Faith or non-belief, okay? Faith or unbelief. How do I make myself have faith? How can I do that? Is that something I, I, I can train myself to do? And the answer is yes. Well, how do I do that? And that's what we're going to talk about today. Let's start with the converse. Why is it you don't believe? What is it that's making you try things in a state of unbelief? And the answer to that is limiting beliefs that you have in your life. That you've been running up against since the beginning. Now, before we ask how we rid ourselves of limiting beliefs, we have to ask, how do we get limiting beliefs? Why do we have beliefs in our brain that are harmful to us getting what it is we want to have? And the answer to that question, let's look at some of the neuroscience. Now, let's think of the human mind as a hard drive. And at the beginning, it only has a few components, just like a computer. I can remember when you would get these boxes of computers and DOS, you know, these things. And basically, at the start, the computer, even today, it doesn't have a lot of programs in there. It's not using a lot of its space. It just does the basic stuff, right? You can probably, you could type but it doesn't have a word program on it, unless you've asked the, the place to put it on. I mean, it, it just, it can be a computer, and now you have to decide, well, what am I using this computer for? What programs am I putting into this computer so that I can use this computer to get the things I want out of this computer? When you're born, you have about 100 billion neurons, and, and neurons are these little structures that can conduct electricity within your body. You also have about 25 billion synaptic connections. What does that mean? Well, a synaptic connection is a connection between two of these neurons. And these connections are what allow us as babies to do the basic things. Just like I told you, the computer can do the basic things. Well, so can we as soon as we're born. We can swallow. We can breathe. We can poop. We can, we can do a few basic things, but there's not a lot beyond that. We're going to have to get programs put into our hard drive, right? From the age of zero to five, we're going to create a quadrillion synaptic connections. Now, how does that work? How do we create these connections? Whenever we have an experience or whenever we perceive an experience, we create these connections. So let's talk about a very clear and obvious example, you meet a dog. You meet your first dog and your brain records the experience. Now, your brain won't just have a recorded experience from the past. The brain will create a meaning out of the experience because that's what the brain does. If the dog bites you, the meaning becomes dogs are dangerous. Thoughts produce feelings Feelings produce actions, and actions produce results that almost always match up with the thoughts. Let me say that again. Thoughts produce feelings, feelings produce actions, and actions are going to produce results. So, you're 30 years old. You see a dog. You feel fear. Why? 
because a dog bit you when you were two years old. You don't remember that anymore. You don't know why you feel that fear. You just feel the fear when you see your dog and the result is you avoid the dog. So this has become a limiting belief. And you might not know where it came from. You might. You might remember being bit. You might not. But the fact is, unless you change this limiting belief, unless you get rid of this limiting belief, you're not going to be able to have a dog. You're not going to be able to have a relationship with people who have dogs. You're going to be nervous when you're just walking on the street. There's going to be a lot of things that are going to interfere with your life. So how do you fix it? How do you fix a limiting belief? You're going to have to do some brain surgery. Don't worry, you don't have to cut into your brain, but you are going to have to get in there and change these synaptic connections. And you don't have to be Einstein to figure out how to do this in the example with the dog. Find someone who's got a very tame, very pleasant dog. Spend time with that dog. Spend time with a second dog that's friendly and tame. And you are going to be able to get rid of the old connection and you're going to be able to create a new connection. None of this stuff is permanent. That's the beautiful thing. People and animals who have suffered horrible trauma are saved when they are able to change these synaptic connections when they are able to change how they view things, when they are able to change what they associate with what. Now, on this module, we're going to pause in the middle so that you can look into your workbook and you can take the first exercise of this module too, which is going to require you to find a quiet place where you won't be interrupted for a little while. And what you're going to do is you're going to start to look for your personal limiting beliefs. And how you do that is you look at what it is you want to accomplish that you haven't been able to accomplish. Because behind that is going to be a limiting belief. It may be about dieting. It may be your relationship to money. It may be your feelings about truly being a leader. It may be about your intimate relationships, why you're not able to find the man or woman of your dreams, why the people you end up being with always seem to disappoint you. You know, if you're not achieving your dreams, something is holding you back. And until you figure out what are these things that are holding me back, you're not going to be able to achieve your dreams. So let's take this time to really look at this thing seriously. It's not about blame. It's not about your parents suck. It's about who you are today and who you want to be in the future and what you want to accomplish. It's as if you want to go from spot A to spot B, and there's woods in between, and you've got to chop down a lot of weeds to get through it. That's all. It's doing something extremely pragmatic to get to the place that you want to go to. So go ahead, pause this program right now, and take as long as you need to do exercise one, and then once you've done that, come on back and uh, we'll talk.
Okay, how was that? Now let me say something. Uh, The reason I use the phrase intended achievements instead of goals is goals are something you work towards. If you say I wanna lose 50 pounds and you lose 48 pounds, that's pretty much okay. You didn't reach your goal, but that's fine. An intended achievement is something you have to do. Intended achievement means you can't get almost there or partly there. An intended achievement is something that you have every intent, desire, uh, and belief to accomplish. When we talk about George Washington crossing the Delaware at the end of this program, you're going to learn what his motto was, victory or death. Not victory or as close as we can get to victory. You know, if you want to be an actor, that's not just a goal. That has to be something that you envision in your mind, that you will not accept anything other than achieving that goal. You know, Sylvester Stallone, when he wanted to to be in the Rocky movie, he wrote a script. And you probably have heard the story. He decided that no matter what, he was going to sell the script and he was going to be in the movie. He was going to be the star. And he wouldn't accept anything else. Now, you have to put your mind into that setup because he had offers. He was basically homeless. He had no money. He was offered hundreds of thousands of dollars for his script. But with the caveat, we're going to hire somebody else. Well, he wouldn't do it. He had committed himself so strongly to the vision of what it was that he required, what it was that he believed he deserved, what it was that he knew he was going to obtain, that when these kinds of offers came, and they always do, there's always offers to take you off of your route, to get you to accept a little bit less, he didn't go for it. All right, he knew what he wanted, and he would accept nothing less. That is the position you have to be in if you want to accomplish something. And you have to go through in your own mind, what would happen if I didn't accomplish this thing? And if that is painful enough, not achieving your dream, then your brain is going to decide it has no choice but to achieve the dream. You know, never give your brain too many choices. <laughs> Limit them as much as you can. Because choices are where, where it becomes kind of weak. Give it a choice. Give it a direction. Give it a goal. Give it a plan. Then it can leap into high gear and it can get you there. So let's look at this exercise through the eyes of George Washington. Who else? Okay, George Washington needs to make a goal. What is his goal? Well, we know what George Washington's goal was. It was to be not just a gentleman, but the man, the top gentleman in his community, the man that people go to, a leader. But let's just start with the beginning. He has to be a gentleman. And what does a gentleman require in that day? Well, to be a gentleman, it means that you have money, enough money that you do not have to work. doesn't mean you don't work. It means you do not have to work. It means you have the correct disposition, this correct temperament, which is you don't ever get too upset. You don't ever get too excited. You're a gentleman. You've got kind of an even keel. It means you have the correct education. It means you have the correct character. It means you have the correct lineage. These are all the things that make a person a gentleman in George Washington's time. 
So what are the limiting beliefs George Washington has to contend with? Well, how about the fact that he's not a gentleman? He's the child of the second wife of his father. He's not raised by his father, but by his mother. He, his father dies when he's 11. He does not go to college like his two, two stepbrothers do. He is not going to receive the kind of uh, property that his older brothers are going to receive. He doesn't have the disposition of a gentleman. He gets very angry. He loses his temper. He doesn't have money. All of this adds up to the conclusion that you're not a gentleman. So how is that going to cause the normal person to feel? It's, he's going to feel like he's a fraud. He's going to feel like he's not a gentleman. He's going to feel like this is something that's been cut off from me. He's going to feel doubts. And so what we're dealing with is those doubts, which you might have with whatever profession you want to do. Maybe you didn't go to the school that everybody goes for that profession or whether what you think everybody goes to, or you don't have the background that you perceive everybody has for that particular profession. He is trying to put himself into a position where he lacks those things. He lacks the background. He lacks the education. He lacks the financial stability. So what do you do when you're in that circumstance? How do you change your mind state when clearly uh, your, your mind is just looking at some actual statistical realities in your life? Well, the first thing you do is you find examples of other people who have done it that you can either emulate or who can just give you the mental sustenance to believe that you can do it. Because let me tell you this, whatever it is that you are looking to do, somebody has done it in more far-fetched circumstances than you are facing. And you can always find that person. Doesn't, doesn't necessarily mean meeting that person, but it means knowing about that person. You know, Viktor Frankl wrote this great book, Man's Search for Meaning, and the book is about how he survived during the Holocaust when he was inside a German concentration camp, how he used his mental state, how he understood that the one thing the Nazis could not rob him of was his own ability to determine the meaning of events. And he realized that the people who survived in there did it by having a superior mental state, by refusing to connect meaning to actions that make it harder to survive. Now, you may say, David, you're demeaning the importance of the Holocaust and of what Frankel went through by talking about this book in terms of just some kind of self-help gizmo. That's the other thing the book does, though, is it, it gives you a little bit of perspective. I mean, it, it is far more intense and serious than anything you and I are probably looking at. This is a man trying to survive when there's all of these impediments being thrown in his way. But the fact is, he's a psychiatrist. He wrote this book so that we could all read it and so that we could all learn from it, and so that we could use it in our lives as well. So yeah, the book definitely gives us perspectives, but 
I learned as a lawyer that the exact same issues that happen in a simple assault case happen in a homicide case. The same mental processes that can help you through a very serious situation can also help you through a less serious situation. But for the most part, you want to look at people who have done the things that you want to do. If you want to be a jazz musician, read books about jazz musicians. Read about Charlie Parker. Read about Lester Young. Read about Miles Davis. Read everything you can about these people who have done the thing that you want to do. George Washington read over and over and over again a panegyric to the memory of His Grace Frederick, late Duke of Schonberg, which was his way of entering into the chivalric world he wanted to be in and of viewing a person who wanted to be the type of gentleman and the type of leader that he wanted to become. He copied out the list of rules of civility so that he would know exactly how he was expected to act around others who were superior to him and so that he would know how others should be expected to act around him when he became the superior person. Another thing he does in order to become a gentleman is to decide that he is a gentleman. If you want to be an actor, decide you are an actor. If you want to be a gymnast, decide that you are a gymnast. Do not put yourself in the position of trying to convince yourself that you are one because when you do that, what does that mean? Means you're an agnostic. Means you don't believe. Your brain is going to find answers that are no, 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 no. So you have to go into it with the understanding that you are that thing. George Washington has no doubt that he is a gentleman. He acts that way when he deals with the governor of Virginia, Dinwiddie. He acts that way in such a almost obnoxious level that he drives people crazy. But it's because he feels like he has to push that out there. He has to show that he is a gentleman. Then there are those areas that are less easy to manifest. Money. Well, he's going to have a profession. He's going to be a surveyor. He's going to make some money. Now, that doesn't quite fit with being a gentleman. Things don't always quite fit. Just figure out the direction you want to go and go that direction. And hopefully down the line, as with George Washington, things will fit. How does he become a surveyor? Well, his dad had surveying instruments. The Fairfaxes need a surveyor. I mean, again, take what you can gather from coincidence. Use what you have. Being a surveyor gets him away from his mother, which is important to him because she is kind of an energy suck. She doesn't really believe in him. So it works for him to uh, get himself out of the house. It does bring him some money, which is going to get him closer to becoming a gentleman, even though, as I said, if you have to work for your money, you're not really a gentleman in the classic sense. It also puts him out there so that he can deal with his favorite subject or one of his favorite subjects, which is land. The Washingtons want to acquire land. You know, this is a country where it's the only place in the world at that time where you can get land and you don't have to do it under anybody else's permission. You don't have to please a king or a duke or an anybody. There's land out there. And Washington, it has been said, is avaricious for land. He wants to get more land. He wants to study land. He wants to know where the good land is. He wants to know what it's like out west. He wants to know what land is being offered at less than its actual value. He wants to know all of these things. And as a surveyor, he can start that lifelong study. Take what you can gather from coincidence. When I quit my job as a lawyer, for about a year I had to work as 
a, an, an Uber driver. And you know, I really learned a whole different relationship to money through Uber. When I was a lawyer, sometimes you went a month and didn't make anything, then you got a big check. Well, I was entering into a new kind of life and Uber helped to teach me about how to just bring in money consistently, constantly, uh, and not necessarily you know look for that big payday all of a sudden. It sure wasn't happening with Uber, but realizing that if you kept working all the time and kept bringing money in, that it was going to end up uh, being enough money to pay the mortgage. And that was a lesson, a business lesson that I learned by driving an Uber. You might say, didn't you already know that? Well, knowing something and then really knowing it by living it are two different things. We can read things and we can learn things and we can recite things. But when we experience things, it actually becomes a part of us. What about education? What about George Washington's lack of education? You know, in the book I was telling you about that Washington loved so much, a panegyric to the memory of Frederick Lake Duke of Schonberg, a lot of parts of it look like they're describing who George Washington will become. It says, he had a robust and strong body, capable of the greatest hardships. He was naturally active, a great lover of exercise, healthful and temperate to admiration. He neither courted nor feared danger. Well, that's clearly who George Washington is going to try to become. It also said about the Duke, he gave himself wholly to the study of military discipline. Nature had fitted him for what Europe admired him afterwards, that is, for an excellent commander. And really, this is the scene of that great man's life. It is the theater where his actions have replenished the world with astonishment. Of course, George Washington's going to do all of that, too. But I'm sure he also read this part. How unprofitable is the happiest nature, if it be not seconded by a generous education? And what does it signify to be descended from heroic ancestors, if we are not made capable of trading in their steps? Education makes us truly what we are. All right, well, we all know George Washington wasn't able to get an education, was he? So what do you do? I mean, for many people, that ends the story. They find something out there that they don't have, that most people do have, who are going into the profession that they want to go to, and that serves as the excuse for them not to try. And George Washington could have done that. He could have said, well, I can't, I can't be a gentleman. I'm, I'm missing too many of the qualifications that are out there to be a gentleman, too many of the things that most gentlemen have. But he didn't do that. Because successful people don't do that. They don't look for excuses as to why they can't do something. They look at a pathway to accomplish the thing they want to accomplish. There are some things you're not going to change about yourself. And some of those things are going to make it look unlikely, especially to other people, that you can accomplish the thing you want to accomplish. You know, Michael Jordan's high school coach told him he's too short to be a great NBA player. Now, Michael Jordan can't change his height. He can change a lot of things. He can change his abilities at shooting by practicing. He can, he can do things about his mental toughness. He can change his body, but he cannot become taller. So there you have it. You either make an excuse or decide or listen to other people and say, you know what, I can't be a basketball player. I'm not tall enough. Most of the people who are great are taller than me. Or you take that as just 
just another thing to spur you toward excellence, another thing for you to prove. George Washington never did get an education. He didn't pretend he had an education. He had a nice library, but his books were very functional. He, he had books about how to grow his crops. He had books about military, but he wasn't going to sit down and have a theoretical conversation about the classics with Thomas Jefferson and John Adams. That just wasn't something he was ever going to be able to accomplish. And so he just moved on without that. And hey, all those people with those educations, who did they follow? At the end of the day, who did John Adams follow? Who did Thomas Jefferson follow? Who did Alexander Hamilton, James Madison? All these people had college educations. All these people continued to educate themselves long after college. But it was George Washington that they followed because he was clearly the leader. He had this leadership quality. He had other things that made it not important to them whether or not he went to college. John Adams mentioned it a couple times because, you know, that's John Adams. But the point is, there's going to be something out there that's going to make your plan seem implausible to others. As long as you don't allow it to make your plan seem implausible to you, that's no excuse to stop. One of my favorite jazz guitarists is Django Reinhardt. And if you listen to him, he has an amazing ability to play very fast runs. He's incredibly artistic. He's just absolutely fantastic. And you would never know that two of his fingers on his left hand were paralyzed. And he had to come up with a whole new way to play the guitar. Now, most people would have said, well, that's it. Uh, Two paralyzed fingers, I'm not playing the guitar. That's not what he did, and he became one of the greatest jazz guitarists ever. One of my favorite movies is The African Queen, and there's this scene in it when Katharine Hepburn and Humphrey Bogart have been uh, dug out of this river, and these German officers can't understand how they got there. And one of the officers asks uh, the, the character played by Catherine Hepburn how she and Humphrey Bogart got there. And she says, we came down the, the Yolanga River. And the interrogator knows about the enemy forts along the way and the crocodiles and the rapids that are just impossible to navigate. And he goes, that's impossible. And she replies, Nevertheless, we came down it. Achieving what you want to do sometimes comes to achieving the impossible. And the impossible can be achieved so long as you don't believe it's impossible. And I'm not telling you to just have a positive mindset. What I'm telling you is that you must rewire your brain so that you believe you can achieve the thing that you're looking to achieve. That you've got to do that because you're not going to achieve it if you don't do that. And there's exercises that you can do so that you can rewire your brain. It's called neuroplasticity. You can rewire your brain in order to achieve what it is you want to achieve. And whether George Washington knew he was doing that or not, he had to do it just like we all have to do it. You know, last night I watched a movie that is about one of my favorite novels of all time, which is called Revolutionary Road. This is a novel that I used to read in college, 
And it's a novel that has grown with me. And as, when I read it today or when I hear the story today, it strikes me very differently uh, than it did back when I was in college. But it's about these two people, Frank and April Wheeler. They're about 30 years old. They're, they've really lost themselves. They've lost each other because they're living an uninspired life. They're living a life that they, they don't like. Frank goes to work every day in a job he despises. April stays home and she's trying to be the mother uh, of her children and, 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 and she's asking isn't there more to this and he's asking isn't there more to this and one day April realizes we don't have to live this life there's nothing requiring us to live here there's nothing that says we have to live in this suburb that Frank has to have this terrible job that we have to be unmotivated for the rest of our lives the way our parents were, the way our parents' parents were. And she comes up with the idea, let's go to Paris. Why Paris? Well, Frank loved Paris when he went out there during the war. He said, that is where I felt the most alive. And her idea is very simple. We go to Paris. I will work because she's a very good secretary and they pay a lot of money out there for that. And Frank can take some time and figure out what it is he wants to do. The whole supposition behind this is he's special. He shouldn't be wasting his life. And she wants to give him the opportunity to find out what it is that he's special at. And she convinces him. And of course, when they tell people, nobody likes this. Everyone just thinks this is a terrible idea, except one person who's certifiably insane. He's, a, he's in an insane asylum, and it makes perfect sense to him. But everybody who's living the normal lives of the time think this is ridiculous. You can't just get up and leave. You can't go to Paris. And Frank gets more and more nervous about it because in his heart, he doesn't know that he's special. He's lost that feeling, and he is terrified that they're going to go out to Paris, and he's going to be sitting around the apartment in his pajamas with nothing to do, and there isn't anything special for him. He loses heart in the whole plan, and so he's going to sabotage it. How many times have you done that to yourself? How many times have you come up with an idea and then spent the next day explaining to yourself why you can't possibly do that because it's unusual, because it's different. Ralph Waldo Emerson says, congratulate yourselves if you have done something strange and extravagant and broken the monotony of a decorous age. Everyone is going to tell you that your plan is crazy if you make a plan to strike out and actually live and actually feel alive. People are going to tell you you're nuts. And partly they're going to tell you that because they're jealous. They're living a miserable life and they don't want to think that there's a choice there, that they could make a change, but there is a choice. And you know there's a choice because that's why you're listening to this. That's why we're in the second module of this program. And you're ready to make that change. I was working with somebody recently who used to be a lawyer and she was very unhappy about being a lawyer and I started talking to her about some of these things. Now let me tell you right now, I'm not a psychiatrist, I'm not a 
a, a life coach or a guru or any of those things. I am a historical expeditionary. I look at history. I look at the lessons, and I've applied them to my own life, and sometimes I'm able to help other people apply them to their own lives. But let me tell you, if you're seriously depressed and in, in need of help— Don't go to a life coach, all right? Because the difference between a life coach and a psychiatrist is that a psychiatrist is bound by some ethical obligations and is not allowed to steal from you, and a life coach is absolutely allowed to steal from you. I watched a seminar of one of these people who who teaches some pretty good things, and I saw this woman, he asked her to come up and uh, and talk to him, and the first thing, thing he asks her is, how much money do you have? I thought, okay, that's pretty weird way to start off a conversation here. She says, I don't have any money. I'm about, she and her husband were like $80,000 in debt. And she'd spent her last $8,000 to take a program with this guy. So I thought, okay, maybe he's going to leave her alone and not bug her for money. But that's not what happened. He said, you need to pay me a $1,000 non-refundable check. And, and you're going to pay 30000 down the line to go on a trip with me to Hawaii. This is how this guy pays for his own vacations. And she said, well, my husband doesn't want me to pay this $1,000 or this $30,000. Gee, what a shock. The husband doesn't want her to pay $30,000 right after she spent $8,000 to go to Hawaii with this guy. And the guy tells her, well, the, you know, if your husband believes in your dreams, he'll support it. So what you need to do is pay the $1,000 without asking your husband or talking to him because that's the only way you can show us all that you believe in your dreams. So, you know, can you imagine if a psychiatrist said that? They'd be drummed out of their profession. They'd be jumped, drummed out of, they may maybe be put in jail. So be very careful when you're listening to these kinds of people. And if they're telling you that the way to show that you believe in your dream is to give them money, if they're telling you the way to achieve your dream is always to give them money, then obviously you don't want to listen to these people. So that's my public service announcement for the moment. But anyway, I talked to this woman. We applied the rules of George Washington. This lawyer, her problem was she didn't think there was anything she'd like to do. And I said, what do you like? Nothing, nothing. I don't want to do anything. I don't want to teach law. You know, she kept looking at the obvious things that lawyers do when they quit being lawyers. They, well, they try to teach law. If you really hate the law, why would you want to go try to teach law? But that's what most of them do. One day I asked her what she was doing when, when I, I called her and she said, well, I'm making a cake. This is how I, this is how I get rid of my anxiety is I make cakes. And I said, well, you love making cakes. She says, yeah, I love making cakes. <laughs> I said, well, why, why haven't we, why hasn't this come up? Why haven't we, you know, we, you told me this. She only told me at that moment because I called her for our, um, discussion and, and she was finishing off making the cake and she said well why would I tell you that and so uh, long story short she is now selling cakes and she hasn't totally ended her law practice but she's pretty close to ending her law practice and she started delivering the cakes during COVID she, she saw this as an opening to deliver food and she, she's a wonderful baker um, she loves what she's doing and she quickly was able to reach the point of believing in what she was doing. So I can't emphasize enough that you're not meant to be unhappy. This isn't touchy-feely stuff when I say that the universe is out there to try to help you obtain 
your goals, that the universe is going to conspire to help you once you figure out what the goal is and once you make a plan. As a historian, I look at taking a risk to achieve what it is you want to do as really the meaning behind this whole country. I mean, can you imagine what a risk it was in the 1600s and the 1700s to cross the Atlantic and to come out here? And it was all done for that reason, so that you could actually have an opportunity to own land, for instance. There were military people who came to America because in England, if you weren't from one of the top families, you weren't going to become a general. That was England's way of really protecting the status quo. They didn't want an army overthrowing the king, overthrowing the queen or the status quo. So you could only be one of the top officers in the army if you were from one of the leading families. So anyway, this is why people came to this country, so they would have that opportunity. And with the changes we have in technology, the opportunities are out there in a lot of ways. They're easier to do than ever. I, won't, I, I don't like the word easy. None of this is ever easy. But they're doable. And there's no excuse not to do it. It's time to take a look at these limiting beliefs that you have that are stopping you from doing the things that you want to do. And it's time to restructure your brain. It's time to use neuroplasticity in order to change the way your brain functions so that you're going to be able to accomplish the things that you actually want to accomplish. Now, I want you to write down three to five limiting beliefs. I don't care if it's just three of them because... I don't know. It seems like the more you do, the less serious you are about each one. I mean, if you take one limiting belief that's been out there your whole life and you're able to do something about it, then we've really accomplished something. For instance, your limiting belief might be that money is very hard to get and that you're not good at getting money. And so I want you to write that down. Write down this limiting belief. And then I want you to write a new empowering belief. If your limiting belief is, I'm bad at making money, your empowering belief can be, I am very good at making money. You might want to write something down like, money flows to me quickly and easily. That's your new empowering belief. And then the third thing you're going to do is you're going to list evidence and what actions you take to support your new belief. If you find a nickel, that's evidence. Money flows to me quickly and easily. What, what can you do to, 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 to take an action to support your new belief? Well, one thing you can do is give some money to a charity, maybe have money in your car so that when there's a, a, a panhandler, uh, you can hand a dollar out. You know, you can tell yourself... I'm going to get this dollar back. I don't have to hoard this money. I, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not somebody who, who's unable to make money. And I can give away money to somebody who needs it because money is going to come back. And you want to list everything that happens that's evidence of your new empowering belief. Your limiting belief might be, I can never stick with a diet. So you have to make a new empowering belief that I can eat reasonably and healthily. And then take down what you eat. Give yourself credit every time you're able to do it. Change the way you think about food. 
none of this is undoable. And the problem you've had with diets in the past is totally mindset. Now, we could talk all about diets and the fact that if it's a diet that does nothing but deprive you of things you like, you're probably not going to stick with that diet for long. But the fact is, uh, what it really all comes down to is how you perceive this experience, how you perceive the act of eating. You might think that your limiting belief is, I don't have the courage to quit my job. And you might want to break that down into more things. What is it that you're fearful of in terms of quitting your job that you hate and moving on to a job that you love? Take actions in that direction. So show bravery in that direction. Maybe the bravery you show is telling your spouse. Maybe that's the bravery that you show. Maybe it's taking a course that's going to help you and support you in your new life and putting the money out there and putting yourself out there and moving forward and moving toward the thing that you want. You might want to take some of these new beliefs and turn them into positive aphorisms that you can say to yourself. Money flows to me freely and easily. You feel silly doing this. I understand that. But if there's a change in the way you feel as you say it, and and there really might be, if you feel empowered when you say it, then say it. It, This is all just a way of controlling our brain rather than letting our brain control us. We're not going to take in the things that hurt us. We're going to change the way the brain perceives things. And we're going to say when we find a nickel, money flows to me freely and easily. And we're going to feel a different kind of feeling about money if we go through this long enough. We all feel silly about this stuff, all right? I understand that. And you might not want to say it in front of people. I'm okay with that. I understand. But you might want to say it when you're alone. Money flows flows to me freely and easily. I am the person who supports my family. I am the leader of my family. Whatever it is, if you say it and you say it in a heartfelt way and you say it enough, it will actually help change the structure of your brain so that you're beginning to actually believe in the things that are helpful to you rather than believing all of the things that are harmful to you. So folks, this has been a lot of stuff we've dealt with here today. So you might want to listen to this again. You might want to look through the notes again. This is going to be a change in the way you live. Once you start changing your mindset, once you start understanding that you have a role in your immediate beliefs and in your feelings towards something. Once you understand that, it changes the way you live and it's going to change your life in other ways as well. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for going through this module with me. Thank you so much for the work you're going to do in the exercise book, really taking these concepts and making them a part of your life. You can achieve the life that you want in just the same way that George Washington achieved the life that he wanted. He's done it. Thousands of other people have done it. Probably millions of people have done it. You can do it too. Good luck with the exercise, and I will talk to you again in the next module.